Kids, you're dismissed for Children's Church. And for the rest of us, let's take our Bibles. We will turn to Zechariah chapter 6. Election time is upon us. Oh, boy. I don't know about you, but election overload is really starting to take its toll. And I've come to a conclusion and great agreement with something that Franklin Graham has said. It is Jesus who sets things right. Not a politician, not a party, not a movement, no one else. Jesus and Jesus alone. And certainly that's borne out in the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking into this morning. As we look into Zechariah chapter 6, we find a group of those who had been exiled, about 50,000 in number. Now think of it in these terms. That would be about the population of Oak Lawn, Illinois. And this group goes back to Jerusalem which has lay in ruins for 70 years. And they're there to rebuild the temple. And they set about rebuilding it. But there were nations all around them. The world was in complete disarray. There was fear. There was frustration. There was this foreboding feeling that came over them like, Man, are we going to be able to survive? Are are we going to make it? And what we find as we look in Zechariah is the hope wasn't a political solution. It wasn't a social solution. It wasn't an economic solution. Their only hope is God. We delude ourselves when we think that human beings can undo the mess that human beings have caused. What human beings wind up doing is making it even messier because we all have the same problem, sin. God has to be the one who sorts things out, who provides the protection and the direction that we need as people. And that's what we're going to see here in this sixth chapter. When we look at the world around us, we see a mess, don't we? It's scary to watch the evening news. I remember nuclear threats when I was a kid. Part of our exercise in elementary school was crawling under the desk and putting our hands over our heads and going into the fetal position in case a nuclear blast hits. Yeah, that's going to save us all, right? (laughs) But there was that fear. And I grew up with that fear. Always hanging off in the distance was some country who had a nuke that would lob it over here. And wipe us out. Thank God people don't control these things. God does. One nutball with an itchy trigger finger, and we're all done. 
But there is a God who directs the affairs of men. And that's something we're going to see more of as we get into this text, into this chapter. Now, as we come to the sixth chapter, and we see Zechariah address the fact that there is a world in disarray, he brings out at the close of the sixth chapter that the only hope for a world to become a world that has order is the coming of the priest king, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he begins in the sixth chapter by talking about a defense of God's people. When we look at chapter 6, again, this is that ragtag group of exiles assembled in Jerusalem, picking through the piles of rubble, finding what's useful, going about the rebuilding of the temple. And as they're doing that, they're feeling vulnerable. No walls, no army, no protection. The perennial enemies that had been the enemies of this people were still there, still committed to the destruction of the people of God. But they had a job to do. They had work that they had to invest in. So what Zechariah shares with them in this last of several visions that were given on February 15th, 519 B.C., is remind them that God is the Lord of all of the earth. They are his people. He has a purpose and a plan for them. They will be protected. What comforting words those are, that God is the one who is ultimately in control. So what he begins with is, in this vision, a promise that God is going to dispatch his spirits to judge the enemies of the people of God. Look at how it begins here in the first verse of Zechariah chapter 6. I looked up again. Now this shows that, the, that, that this is another vision that Zechariah is having. And he says this, And there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. Now, when we look at this image, we don't think perhaps in terms of the people of 519 B.C., the audience where this is being given. Chariots are implements of war. These are designed to inflict fear and awe. If you can imagine being a foot soldier and seeing one to four horses coming at you, dragging behind a chariot that is meant to just mow you down and crush you to pieces, that's the picture of a chariot in this time. And what the Word of God is telling us in this vision Zechariah sees these chariots in waiting. And these chariots are identified as something more than just these implements of war. Because as we read on in the text, we find in verse 2 that it says this, The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled, all of them powerful. Now, as I was studying this, I couldn't find a really good explanation for the colors of the horses and what they represent. So I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to identify 
what these colors might represent, and here's why. Have you ever given an illustration of something, and in giving the illustration, you don't want people to go off on the tangents of identifying every single aspect of your illustration, and you become frustrated when they try to make more out of it than it is. I think sometimes we can do that in prophecy, and we try to assign a meaning to every single aspect of what is there, and there's not really a meaning there for us, so we create one. We have to be careful of that. But here, what we do find is an explanation of what the chariots and horses represent. So in verse 4, we find that Zechariah says, I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these, my Lord? And then look at the fifth verse. The angel answered me, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. Now, two important points in this fifth verse. First of all, the text identifies the horses and chariots as the four spirits of heaven. Now, what does that mean? Many of you know that in Hebrew, the word that's translated spirit can also be translated breath. It can also be translated wind. As a matter of fact, some of your versions might even say the four winds are going out. But you know, I think that the NIV does a good job of rendering the spirits. And what I think that Zechariah is getting across or being told by this angel is a profound truth. There is an unseen world, unseen by us, where there are spiritual influences in this world that keep the physical influences in this world in check. We get a picture of this in the Old Testament. Remember the story of Elisha. Elisha had gone into a house with a servant, and he comes out the next day, and Syrian troops had assembled around Elisha. And the servant was frightened. And remember Elisha's prayer. The scripture records he, opened, he, he prayed this, Open the eyes, Lord, of the servant so that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There is an unseen world of spiritual influences that has power over the physical universe. Many of us look at these things and we deny it because we can't see it. How short-sighted. There are spiritual elements that God sends his angels, spiritual beings, to hold in check the physical direction that kingdoms might go. As a matter of fact, we even see in Scripture that there are actually angels assigned to nations as protectors. For instance, in Daniel's book, it says this, At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. Now, Michael is the archangel Michael, and he is called the great ruler or the ruler of angels, hence archangels, and he is there to do what? To protect the people of God. It goes on to say, there will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book of life, will be delivered. So here is a spiritual being 
taking physical protection of the people of God. And it isn't even the angel who has the power. It is God who has the power. God sends these spiritual beings to accomplish His purposes. Notice again this fifth verse. And after it talks about these four spirits of heaven who are standing in the presence of the Lord going out, notice how the Lord is described. He is in the presence, or these spirits are in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. You see, in Zechariah's time, they had geographical ideas of God. There's the God of the Babylonians, there's the God of the Egyptians, or gods of each of these. And the Hebrews, the Jews, they have their God. And he's powerful with them, but not powerful anywhere else. The point of this passage is this. Our God is the God of the whole world. So whether he is recognized or not, whether he is worshipped or not, has no bearing on the power of God. He is the Lord, the Master, the Controller of the entire world. Now, I don't know about you, but I take great solace in that fact. God has a purpose and a plan that is unfolding. And in the Word of God, we're given glimpses of that plan. Prophecy is a look for us into the future. But in reality, it isn't God being predictive. It is God being revelatory. It is God saying, this is my plan that I will see to it unfolding and I'm giving you some truth concerning what is to come. You see, when there's a prediction, there's always the chance that the prediction won't come true. But when there's a revelation of what God is doing, there's a surety in God performing what he says will happen because he is the Lord of all the earth, not just in 519 B.C., but in every year, every day, every culture, every context, God is Lord. That's the idea. We need to recognize that truth and embrace the understanding that God isn't bound by time or geography or anything else. That God is the same God today that he was then as he was protecting his people and bringing about the plan that he has for the world. God is at work today doing the same thing. And our hope and our plans and our future rest in the hands of God. That's our takeaway in this. That's the encouragement that God was giving through Zechariah to the people. And that's the encouragement that the Spirit of God inspired in the Word to bring to you today. That God is the Lord of the whole world. His dominion stretches throughout the earth. Look at what the vision goes on to say. In the sixth verse it says, the one with the black horses is going to the north, the one with the white horses toward the west, the one with the dabbled horses toward the south. So in every direction, these agents of God are going to work their control over the enemies of God 
But then look at verse 7. Then the powerful horses went out, and they were straining to go throughout the earth. And he said, go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. Now here's the picture. Have you ever seen a horse at the gate of a race? Man, they're, they're bouncy. They're excited. They're ready to go out. They want to race so bad. They're bouncing up and down. They're stepping high. They're throwing their heads back. They are straining to go out and do what they've been trained to do, what their purpose is as a horse, to go out and race. These spirits that we find here, represented by these horses and these chariots, are longing to go out and accomplish the work of God, the judgment of the enemies of God. Those who had been so cruel, so harsh to the people of God, don't you imagine that the angels, those who are a part of God's heavenly host, as they witness this, don't you think that there's a part of them that wants to go and take care of business? Dispatch those who are hurting the people of God. That's the imagery that we have here in the seventh verse. They're straining, and they want to go throughout the earth, and they want to conquer the earth and take it over for God. And there will come a day when God will say, go throughout the earth, and they will. That's the picture that we have here. You see, the Scripture describes for us a time when all of the enemies of God will be stopped. All of those who have resisted God and His purpose and His plan will be stopped. And God will send His forces into this world to see that it happens. I imagine that the angels are waiting for that day with anticipation. When can I go and do what God wants me to do to those who have opposed my God? They're straining and waiting. And there's going to come a day where all of this will unfold. And it's described for us in the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19. And when we look in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, we see angels opening seals, opening bowls, sounding trumpets. All of these spiritual messengers of God are going to intervene in the physical world. And I would encourage you to go home and read Revelation chapter 6 through 19 and see what God will visit on this world through these angelic forces. But for now, these things are in check. Why? Peter says this, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It is the mercy of God and the grace of God that he holds back 
the things that are described in the book of Revelation. But they will not be held back forever. God wants to see as many as will respond to the gospel. But there is coming a time where that opportunity closes where the people who have stood against God as enemies, and by the way, if you have never come into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, by scriptural definition, that puts you in the camp of God's enemies. There's no neutral ground here. God withholds this judgment because of his mercy and his grace. And so here, the Word of God is encouraging the people of Zechariah's day that God has a purpose that's unfolding for you, but it has a near and a far application. For the people of Zechariah's day, he's saying God will protect you and the purpose for which you have been brought right here to Jerusalem will be fulfilled. But there's a far application as well, and that is that God will dispatch all of his enemies throughout the earth. Not a limited scope, but a global scope. And it's coming. Now, let's move on in this text. As we continue, we find a description of the future reign of the Messiah. After talking about the enemies that will be defeated, God then talks about the Messiah, and the role that he will fulfill as being both priest and king. So look as we come to this ninth verse, and notice what it says. The word of the Lord came to me, take silver and gold from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jedidiah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. And take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak. Now, we hear a lot of funny names in this text, and sometimes we can get lost in those names, and we don't see what's really going on. So let's talk about it. What's going on is this. People had come from Babylon bringing silver and gold. Their names are mentioned here. And at the conclusion of the eight visions that Zechariah gives, there is now a ceremony that he's calling the people to engage in, and that is to take silver and gold that they had brought to fund the rebuilding of the temple and use it instead to create a crown. And in the creation of that crown, they are to take it and they are to place it on the head of the high priest, Joshua. Now, we look at this and we wonder, okay, what's being communicated here? Because we're not thinking about something that is, for the people of Zechariah's day, kind of the elephant in the room. And that is this. Nobody crowns a high priest. High priests could not be king in Israel. The high priest was the high priest, and the king was to be through David's line. So what in the world is going on with taking a crown and crowning a high priest? And the truth that we have to see in this text is God has so much more for us in this text than just this ceremony. 
You see, Joshua doesn't keep the crown very long. It's placed on his head, then it's removed, and then it's put in a place in the temple to remind people that there is one who is coming who will be both priest and king, and that is the Messiah. There was a descendant of David among the exiles. His name was Zerubbabel, but he didn't receive the crown. Joshua did. Because what God wanted to do was remind the people that Messiah is coming. And Messiah will be a priest and a king. As priest, he would be the go-between between man and God. As king, he would be the sovereign ruler of the people. And so here is Joshua representing that. In fact... Earlier in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8, we saw that Joshua was called one who was symbolic of things to come. Notice it says, listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I'm going to bring my servant the branch. Now the branch represents the Messiah. We traced that passage back to many of the prophets who called the coming Messiah the branch. The branch represents one who is a descendant of David. And David was the kingly line through which the Messiah would come. But the Messiah is going to be more than a king. The Messiah is going to be one who comes and fulfills the role of priest as well. Look at verse 12. Tell him... This is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is Branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. Now, Joshua wasn't the builder of the temple of the Lord. Zerubbabel did most of the work. Joshua was there alongside him. But the branch, the Lord Jesus Christ, we're told in Scripture When he returns, there will be a temple built to honor God during the reign of Christ at his return for the thousand years that he reigns here on earth. Many prophets speak of this. Ezekiel goes into a great deal of description in Ezekiel chapter 40 about this temple that will be built during the reign of Christ on earth, the literal bodily reign of Jesus Christ on planet earth. And other prophets, Isaiah and Micah, also talk about this temple that will be built by this high priest, this priest and king. In fact, Micah says this, And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains. Now, the mountain of the house of the Lord is Jerusalem. And it will be the prominent city when God returns in the person of Jesus Christ and establishes his reign on earth, Jerusalem will raise in prominence. And it says this, it will be raised above the hills and the people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So do you get this picture? Prophetically, what the Scripture is telling us is this. Jesus Christ is coming again. 
And Jesus Christ will be the Messiah who fulfills the promises of these prophets. Where he reigns as king and where he is the intermediary as the priest. All to reach out to the world and win the world to the truth of God. This is a beautiful promise. It's one that we have not yet seen fulfilled, but it is one that is as sure as there is a God that these things will come true. We're given these glimpses into these truths, but they are coming. Verse 13 really clarifies the Lord's role. Look at verse 13. It is He who will build the temple of the Lord and will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on His throne. And He will be a priest on His throne. And there will be harmony between the two. In other words, He is the perfect priest and king. He is the ruler of the world spiritually and politically. He will be the ruler that brings order to the disarray of this world. And until that takes place, the world will continue to be in disarray. And we see it, don't we? We're told, educate people, and through education, the world will come to peace. If that were true, college campuses would be the most placid and wonderful environments on the face of the earth, not so. We're told, give people financial support. If everyone does their fair share and spreads everything amongst themselves, utopia will ensue and everything will be just fine. But what do we find? Not so. We're given solution after solution after solution that plays out. The same promises that were being made in my childhood in the 60s are made today as I'm in my 60s. Right? No solution. There's only one solution, and that is Jesus, the high priest and the king. Now remember, Jesus is both even now. He's at the right hand of the Father, and as high priest, Jesus fulfills that role for you and for me. For instance, the writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Jesus even now fulfills the role of high priest at the right hand of God. But that role will move from the right hand of God to the throne of the temple in Jerusalem. That's the promise. Look at this. Hebrews 7.26 Such a high priest meets our needs. One who is holy and blameless and pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. 
Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of other people. Now look at this. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. You see, Jesus is not only the high priest, he is the sacrifice. And he makes us right with God. So this promise that we find here in Zechariah is a promise that there is one who will come who will be king and high priest and he will be here on earth and he will set things straight. But we find one more truth that I want us to look at in this sixth chapter. There is a delay until the priest comes, this priest king, the Lord Jesus Christ. We wait 519 A.D., 2016 B.C., it's been a while. Again, God isn't slow in keeping this promise. It is the patience of God that extends time for people to get right with Him and have a relationship with Him, but it's coming When we look at biblical prophecy and we look at our world, the stage is being set for the return of the priest king. The things are lining up that God says will line up. And as sure as I'm standing here, they will come. But for now, we wait. Look at verse 14. The crown, now this is the crown that was given to Joshua. And notice it says this, the crown will be given to Heldai, Tobiah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Now, do you see what's being described in that 14th verse? Joshua doesn't keep the crown. It's made... It's placed on his head as the high priest. Everybody get this picture? King and high priest? Okay, now remove it because he's not the one. And let's put it in the temple as a reminder that there is one coming who will be both of these things. That's the image. That's the picture of Jesus who is to come. And then it goes on to say something else. Those who are far away will come to help build the temple of the Lord. And you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord. Here's the promise. God is going to send the priest king. For the immediate audience that Zechariah is speaking to, he's saying, the same God who sees to all of these details will see to your success. He's going to send the resources that you need to rebuild the temple. So hang in there. Hope in the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Experience His promise. But again, there's a near-far aspect to this. See, the temple that was described by Elijah, or excuse me, Ezekiel. The temple that was described by Micah. The temple that was described by Isaiah and other prophets. That's coming too. And it will be a place that is built 
in honor of the Lord. And where the perfect priest and king will reign. And the authority will go throughout the entire land. So what's the message to us? Obey the Lord. You know, sometimes we look at prophecy and we look at all of these things and we say, my, how fascinating. But it's just interesting stuff that we're looking at and we're not thinking about a practical application. If God is who God is and does what God says he will do, then doesn't it make sense for me to respond by obedience? That's the takeaway from this passage. Don't just look at the things that God is promising and saying as far off and say, wow, someday those things are going to happen pie in the sky by and by. That's not the purpose. Prophecy should affect us today in preparation for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. God will prepare his people. He's going to reassemble Israel in the land. When Zechariah was writing this, they were scattered everywhere. And even today, the people of God are scattered everywhere. But the scripture tells us he will regather them in Jerusalem and they will look upon him whom they pierced and worship him as Messiah. That's coming by the very power of God. But rather than just looking at that and saying, my, my, isn't that interesting, I have new prophecy information that I can put in my journal How does that affect me? And how it affects me is this. I should obey. The people of Zechariah's time were called to build a temple. As the people of God today, we're called to build a kingdom. And we build that kingdom by sharing the truth of Jesus Christ with others. They did it with planks and pieces of stone. We do it with people as we build the kingdom of God. And part of our obedience is sharing the truth of God with others and inviting them into a relationship with the priest king, Jesus Christ. Let them experience what was described in the book of Hebrews the high priest who can save forever those who come to him. Let me encourage you this morning. Some of the things that I shared you may look at and say, wow, I've not heard anything quite like this. I've never pictured anything like this. The Bible says that about what's going to happen in the future. Yes, it does. Perhaps you're not sure about where you stand in your relationship with God. At the close of the service, I would love the opportunity to speak with you. I'll be at the back door. Or you could talk to TJ, who did the announcements, or Dan, who's at the piano. Any one of us would love to sit down and talk with you about where you are in your relationship with God. The Scripture is talking to us clearly that things are unfolding that are moving us closer and closer to the time when God seals up history and stops the progress of evil and deals with the enemies of God. And I want to be numbered 
among those who are followers of God to experience the, free, the, the, the freedom, the, the salvation that is offered in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the reminder that it is to us that in this world that is in disarray, you alone bring order. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let us experience your ministry in the body here on earth as the perfect high priest and king. In Jesus' name, amen.